In ancient Egypt, there existed a whole city of people without noses, most of whom had had theirs cut off on the orders of an impetuous pharaoh. Around 15 centuries later, in Italy, new noses were created using skin removed from patients' arms. Even in the early 20th century, physicians were offering people transfusions of lamb's blood. Thankfully, the practice of surgery has advanced a long way in a short and, well, long time. A new book, Spare Parts, A Surprising History of Transplants, describes that winding, blood-spattered road in fascinating, stomach-churning detail. I'm Alexis Self, and in this episode of The Monocle Weekly, I sat down with Paul Craddock, a medical researcher and historian, to discuss the book and the history of transplant surgery. There's obviously a certain pride and a happiness about it being released, but there's a, a kind of a sadness as well, because I come from a background, a working class background. I grew up in a house without books. It's not unusual, that, but I was reflecting on how I got here because it's not a usual starting point for a historian. Basically, it was a combination of education, maintenance, allowance, and <laughs> and a lot of uh, librarians and school libraries and things like that. But I, I started actually as a jazz musician. I knew you'd, uh, <laughs> your face would do something like that. That is very cool. It's not very cool. <laughs> I didn't really have any guidance in the early stages. And I was told, you know, schools just told you to go for what you're interested in. So and I was interested in jazz. I went for that and I couldn't afford the audition fee for Leeds. I couldn't afford the audition fee for Salford to £90 and £50 respectively. But I could afford the audition fee for Central Lancashire, which was nothing. So I ended up getting a first class degree in music and a master's in performing arts, actually. Then I ended up working, temping for the NHS for eight months or so. And then in the financial crash happened 2008 and I was told not to come to work the next day because I was just a temp, it could just get rid of me. So I moved within two weeks. I took a grammar test and within two weeks I was teaching English in rural China. And I had also applied for a PhD because I knew I wanted to do something, you know, quote unquote intellectual. So I had that coming up and there was eight, nine month gap before that was going to happen. So I moved to rural China to teach English and that was a horrible experience. But while I was there, I was looking, you know, in my time off on the internet, I was looking for things that I might want to research. And I came across this picture of a woman called Jennifer Sutton. It sent shivers down my spine. It was a picture of a student, a young girl. She was staring through the glass of a museum case at her own heart. And that captivated me. I think it captivated me for a few reasons, actually. One of them was the fact it was a kind of an, an implicit appreciation for the health service, for transplant, the transplant service in particular, of course, because without them, Jennifer wouldn't be there. And actually, I, from working with the NHS as a temp, I came to appreciate that myself. I had congenital cataracts as well, so I had a lot of eye problems growing up in the NHS of a reason I can see now. So I appreciated that level of, that implicit appreciation that I suppose that thank you that the picture represented, but also it was a very intimate, as you can imagine, a woman looking at her own heart. It doesn't get much more 
intimate than that. This was 12 years. I think it was the image was 2008, 2007. Oh, wow. But looking at that and, and, and thinking about the intimacy of that image, it brought up quite fundamental questions for me. Questions that everybody asks themselves from one time or another, for one reason or another. Things like, what does it mean to have a body? What does it mean to be an individual, to have an identity? Even what it means to be alive and human. I wanted to know more about this remarkable procedure that could prompt such reflection in me, in someone who is not medically trained. I'm not a medic. So for a person who's not involved in transplant, I wanted to know more. And the books that were available were mostly written by retired surgeons, some of whom were writing themselves into the history. Or they were memoirs by patients, which were incredibly moving and emotional. But again, it didn't reflect that sort of the vastness of that subject. And as I started to research, it, it turned out to be far bigger, deeper, more historically rich subject than, well, certainly the surgical accounts yeah. uh, give it credit for. So, I mean, you are a medical historian. And even before you wrote this book, as you say, you know, you'd observed medical procedures and, and you'd worked in the NHS. And I imagine you were steeped in the subjects, but was there anything you discovered in its writing that surprised or, you know, even shocked you? The first thing that really surprised me, and it came quite soon actually, was the sheer age of transplant surgery. We generally think about transplants as being organ transplants. And we think about that central event of the 20th century being the race to transplant a human heart. And that was a big deal at the time. It was culturally very important. It was, it was a kind of the same kind of cultural flavor, I think, as the moon landings. Mm. Uh, so that's the heart transplant with Christian Bernard. That so. was end of 1967. Yeah. That story is, is one of those stories of macho men doing macho things better than one another. It's very powerful. It's one of those technology races that make for good reading and good listening. And also around that time in the 1960s, that was the time when doctors and hospitals started to get savvy about the media and started to curate their own public image. So looking at the timelines of other historians who, as I said earlier, were mostly surgeons as well, you get a timeline that reflected that. Things would proceed from that heart transplant operation or they would lead up to it. The earliest point on any of these timelines that I ever found was 1900 and 1901, which is when Alexei Carell worked out how to sew together blood vessels. It's a procedure called vascular anastomosis. That's when organs became transplantable. But if you think about what a transplant is, it's a transaction of material between two bodies or two places on a body. There's an uprooting. And there's a movement and there's a planting again, a replanting somewhere else. So the first transplant was a skin graft. And the first reference to a skin graft was in the 6th century BC. And it was in the Sushruta Samhita, which is uh, an ancient Indian Ayurvedic surgical text. And that text actually is a record of operations that were even at that time considered traditional. So transplant is, is very, very old. The cesarean section is also in that, that same text. So that surprised me that it went back that far. I'm quite a squeamish person. And I think in a way that must be quite a modern 
malady or attribute. I mean, I'm not saying that people weren't shocked by blood and guts 200 years ago, but in a way you were more exposed to it, mm. to, to physical suffering. And actually, I think the interesting thing is, is how kind of depersonalized medicine has become, or in a sense, kind of fenced off from the rest of society. You can walk into a hospital anywhere in this country without being stopped. And obviously in other parts of the world, physical suffering and, and illness is, is much more immediate and in your face. But I wonder if the advancement of medicine has kind of increased squeamishness mm. and Ernest Becker, the, the philosopher calls the denial of death, mm. which is what, you know, when we're not faced with death and overt physical suffering on a daily basis, at least in the West, we're able to kind of almost deny its existence more. A friend and colleague of mine, Professor Roger Kneebone, used to run historical reenactments of surgery. To one of these, he invited a man whose name escapes me now, but he painted war images. So he was in Afghanistan or Iraq. He painted images in war zones and he'd seen some horrific things. He came to one of Roger's reenactments and it wasn't even a real person. It was pig anatomy that had been installed into a plastic case that it looked quite convincing, but it wasn't real. And he knew it wasn't real and he fainted. So it's a very, it's very interesting what people mm. find squeamish, but also in the book, I mentioned Leonardo Fioravanti. He was the person, the main story of the book opens with. So the story starts with this renegade, quite colorful Italian surgeon who steals the ancient secret of skin grafting from a surgical family in Trapea through a period of 60 years, I'd say that skin grafting technique became more widely known and it became, you know, it came to be in wider circulation, but squeamishness must have been something that people experienced at the time because he stole that secret by pretending he didn't like blood, but he wanted to see this operation in progress because he had a relative who'd lost his nose. And he, he was going to entrust his relative to these surgeons. So he convinced them to let him watch by saying, I need to see how this is done, but I really don't, I don't like blood. But he didn't mind blood because he's a surgeon himself. Yeah. And he nicked it. Is he the guy who pisses on the nose? He is the guy who pisses <laughs> on the nose. So he's walking with his soldier or guard and he gets his nose lobbed off. I was yeah, this, sorry. amazed how many people's got their noses chopped off in, in the kind of medieval and early modern period. Oh, it was everywhere. Yeah. It's very interesting in the book about the kind of commodification of the body. And that's really interesting when people start defining themselves based on what they own. And then they start thinking mm. about their body in terms of possession and things that they owned. How was that down to the advancement of medical knowledge? How much was it due to capitalism and how much was it due to this kind of understanding that parts of the body were replaceable and they weren't intrinsic to who you were, your nose or your fingers or your eyeballs or your teeth. So the 18th century is the Georgian era has been called the birth of the modern age for a reason. And that's because a lot of modern ways of thinking sort of emerged then. One sort of background thing to what you're describing, one sort of background um, philosophical shift, I suppose, is that we went from being people who considered themselves to have an unchangeable, immutable soul. That's what they were. And it wasn't divisible. But in the 18th century, you had thought emerging that said that, no, we're not actually these individuals that can't be changed and divided. 
we're not souls necessarily. We are compositions of things. So we get to design who we are, which is quite a modern concept. Not only we get to design who we are, things influence what we are. We became blank slates. That's quite a big shift from being an indivisible soul to being a composition of mm, things. Yeah. And that shift enabled or it invited people to think about who they were in terms of what they owned. So you could, you could be the person with the Wedgwood tea set, or I don't know very much about 18th century furniture. So one thing I did want to ask you now, which is, has just come up, is like, it's interesting because your book is a look back on not, you know, stuff that was kind of blind alleys, but people were muddling around and, and learning things, sometimes by accident, sometimes by design. Is there anything that you've observed advancements that are happening now that really kind of make you believe that anything is possible? Yes, a few things, actually. I'll give you two examples, which I've, I've put in the book as well. The first one is the spinach heart, and that basically is a spinach leaf that has been in a bath of detergent, so its spinach matter has dissolved, and you're just left with a collagen frame. And there are scientists in, well, they were in Worcester Polytechnic Institute now at Harvard, who can populate that frame then with human heart cells, so your own heart cells, and that can be used to plug a hole in your heart. For instance, it hasn't been yet. It's not reached clinical application, but there's that sense that we're starting to discover. For me, it's exciting because we're starting to discover that the boundaries that we've drawn for millennia between plants and animals are starting to dissolve in some really interesting ways. And the, the reason that the scientists are using a spinach leaf is because 3D printers haven't reached the stage where they can successfully print capillaries, you know, very tiny vessels, but we can use structures in nature that already have them. So the second example I'd give is a team of scientists in Tokyo who have managed to successfully graft together plant matter, algae, and animal matter, rodent, into one organism. And that just, that blows my mind because I, I don't know the science behind this, but it's what is that? Is it a plant? Is it an animal? I mean, these categories have been around for a long time, but then they don't describe either of those things fully. Another thing that is a kind of modern phenomenon, you know, there's a passage dealing with an outbreak of nervousness. Again, I think it's in Georgian England. And of course, as you mentioned, it was cloaked in assumptions about the superiority of certain races and classes, the idea that one was nervous because their mind was functioning at a higher level. Today, we'd call this mental illness. Do you think the birth of psychoanalysis is, is partly attributable to a sort of mastering of the body and a kind of amelioration of its quotidian pains? You know, we don't feel this. Our teeth aren't hurting the whole time. So we can think more about our mental state and our, our mental health. Oh, that's interesting. Possibly. I don't know how to answer that because I, I don't know very much about the birth of psychoanalysis. Mm. And psychoanalysis. I, I suppose I, I'm interested in that section of the book mm. when you're talking about nervousness. And I, I believe it's actually in the teeth. Yes, it is. Section. The teeth section, yeah. How does that relate to, to teeth, the kind of this idea of nervousness? Most medical conditions at the time could have been considered nervous because the nerves were supposedly the location of what they called a vital principle. In other words, life. 
So if you had an inflamed nerve ending that caused a rash, that would be considered a nervous condition. So it wasn't all necessarily mental. Sometimes it was bodily. I'm not sure if there's a strain of nervousness that then ends up having meaning for modern psychoanalysis. It might very well do, but I, I don't know. I don't know about it. It's funny how that word nervous, right? And, and this idea, I think this, I find this a really English thing. Again, this is just <laughs> something that I think the kind of negative words, which actually mean sort of positive things. I mean, being nervous just means feeling your nerves it's related to mm, mm. and and you know pathetic comes from pathos which means to feel mm. having an ex excess of feeling or emotion is a negative now and i wonder if that is also related to you know this kind of i feel like it's a particular problem in this country and this kind of separation of death and fencing off of death and i love going to naples and i feel like part of it's kind of the richness and, and sort of Actually, the kind of happiness of its people and their emotion is down to the fact that they aren't afraid of death. You know, they're faced with it and they used to sort of worship skulls and skeletons. But, you know, it, they have a real kind of connection to death. And actually, you know, life is... Life is just going towards... Yeah, exactly. I'm you know, terrified of death. Are you, are you? Yeah, of course. Yeah. But... It's not an English, English thing. <laughs> um, when you were talking about jazz, I thought that was really interesting. Jazz is... And, you know, the early surgeons and the early practitioners of, of medicine were in a way improvising, right? Or they were just kind of, they were almost artists. Well, they were. Artists. They were artists. Yeah. Jazz is free form and kind of improvisational, but music cleaves to order. Was that part of the appeal, do you think, of Ooh. medicine? Possibly. Possibly somewhere in my mind it might have been. Do you find that there are symmetries between jazz musicians improvising and, and kind of early surgery and stuff like that. I suppose so. I suppose, I suppose so because, well, <laughs> I know a lot of surgeons end up being, for some reason, jazz musicians. I've never really asked why. Yeah. Well, surgery. Good with their fingers. Good, it must be. Must be. <laughs> very dexterous. Yeah. Ah, that probably is why, actually. Early surgery, though, for very, very primitive. I talk about Galen and Galen's idea of anatomy, which was, based actually on how I've described it as an anatomical romp through the animal kingdom because human dissection just wasn't an option in those days, in Galen's time. He'd learnt what he did about anatomy from cutting up various animals. And from that, much of medicine, much of surgery, until the 18th century, was guided by Galen's observations. And if an anatomist would, for instance, see in front of him something that wasn't described by Galen, it was either a translation error or the body itself was an anomaly because Galen couldn't be wrong. So you didn't have that, you didn't have that sense of improvisation, I don't, I don't think. You had a score that you stuck to. Yeah. Regardless of what was in front of you. One last thing, again, you touched on this in the book, is the kind of war as an engine of progress you know obviously technology and ideology are kind of hastened or accelerated by you know times of extreme hardship and mm. conflict what impact did especially the 20th century wars have on the advancement of surgery well when it comes to transplant surgery the biggest advancement of the second world war would be the invention of a kidney dialysis machine which was it's actually an incredibly simple concept 
Willem Kolf, he learned that cellophane, which is also a sausage type of sausage skin, that that could purify liquids. So one of his colleagues had used it to purify fruit juice in a previous life. And he thought, well, maybe it can purify blood. So what he did was he took a sausage skin, filled it with his own blood and injected a bit of urea as well to simulate a patient with kidney failure. And he sloshed that around in a bath of water and then was amazed to find that actually the um, urea had made its way out into the water and it was a very effective substitute for a kidney because there are lots of technical difficulties with getting blood from a person's body through this kind of mechanism and back in cleaned. There's a lot of problems with that. I think people understand his story as being interrupted by the war. But when you look at the materials that seemed to, that he seemed to use, it was things like sausage skins. It was an enamel bath. It was the frame of a shot down German aircraft. And he did all of this under Nazi occupation. Where, where was he? This is Netherlands. Yeah. So that context really informed that innovation. Thank you, Paul. Spare Parts, A Surprising History of Transplants is out now and available to purchase from all good bookshops. This is the Monocle Weekly. I'm Alexis Self. Thank you for listening.